rest in peace, Jalen Walker. That's the first thing I want to make sure I say today. It's so challenging to have a platform and to have a platform that isn't always directly aligned with things like police brutality, but you can't not say anything. When I was thinking about what we're going to talk about today and and pulling everything together, there was a sort of guilt about even uh, going into any mode of conversation that can lead toward laughter or something silly because, you know, there's just all, and, and he is one of, you know, he's, again, he's the one we heard about. He's the one who made it on TV. It's just this ecosystem that we're, we're constantly living in. We'll talk a little bit more about it in the, in the final movement, but I took a look at the footage. I don't usually look at the footage. It's, we'll, we'll we'll get to it in the fourth movement, but did you have any opening uh, thoughts? Yeah, you know, I, I, I know I've said a couple times that I see the news, bad headlines, and it doesn't even phase me anymore. Yeah. The last couple of days have phased me. Mm -hmm. I just think it's a cumulative effect, you know? And I think a lot of people are feeling it. Um, it just, depends on how you deal with it i guess and i don't know what the right outlet for me for it is yet i think that's what we need to begin to talk about the the outlets the the modes and vehicles for conversation and bridging some of these gaps because at the end of the day people are losing their lives this is this isn't just political talk we're talking about a, a public health crisis to an extent you know mm. when, we, when yeah. we talk about the police and then you know the guns themselves um, anyway, we'll we'll get more into that in the uh, in the final movement. Uh, you also wanted to you know get us kicked off by saying something about these fireworks. We're recording on July fourth. So you you might I don't know if the filters yeah. will 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 uh, block out the sound of the fire outside of of Studio G here, but go yeah, ahead. because it is definitely audible. It'll definitely bleed through the microphones, I think. And if you don't hear that. Then you'll hear the next door neighbor's husky, mm-hmm. who is having a minor meltdown uh, on occasion when things get really loud. But um, you know, I've spent some time on social media, like uh, the uh, next door page for my neighborhood, things yeah. like that. And there's people that come out and they say, "Hey, look, I have PTSD from my time in the military. I'd really appreciate, you know, and I get you wanting to fire off fireworks, but if you could, you know, stop at midnight, that would really help." And I was shocked by the number of people who push back. Like, screw you. This is our right. Right? Once upon a time, especially growing up and everything, it's not something I even thought about. People with PTSD or uh, the pets who are traumatized by it, much less the outdoor animals, the squirrels and raccoons. Oh, they're traumatized. must be in in hell right now. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that we can't shift. I understand that it's a part of the tradition. And... I will go as far as to say maybe we need to put the fireworks down for a change. Yeah. I mean, here in St. Paul, we don't do the citywide celebration because Mayor Carter said, no, we're not wasting no money on that shit. Uh, Right. And and that's just that. But even even beyond just the saving of money. After 2020, and then again, we're talking about all this gun violence and stuff. I don't know how comfortable I am hearing all of these explosions half the evening either. So yeah, we can talk what about it What do you mean half the out. evening? It's weeks long. And I, I understand that, but I'm saying we can say, okay, cut it off at midnight. But I'm, I might push people as far as to say, just put the fireworks up. Stick with your sprinklers or or whatever your little sparklers, kids, you mean? Uh, spray sparklers or whatever little kid things, you know, so they can feel like they have a holiday. But these giant grenade sounding things. That's what I'm that saying. People drive it's across like the state to buy the east that's side. The east side, for some reason, upped its game. Uh, they've got artillery. 
It's not even the pretty stuff anymore. Mm -hmm. It's the stuff that rattles your windows and makes you jump when you're sitting inside. In in, yeah. Now I don't know what it is about you know somebody who's like, well, you know, this um, gas is really expensive and inflation's really cutting into my weed money. But I tell you what, I'm going to take this F-150 my dad gave me and drive (laughs) over here to Prescott and buy fifteen hundred dollars worth of dynamite Mm -mm. because that's my right. Let's just be open to the conversation and open to shifting the way that we do things. I didn't grow up thinking about it. If somebody said something to me, maybe that would have flipped the way that I think about these fireworks. It certainly has flipped the way that I think about them now. So if you're out there and you have pets or you uh, know someone uh, with PTSD, I don't know, educate your neighbors, let them know this is what's going on. So at that point, you can't say that you didn't tell them or or you didn't in the nicest way you could. It's easy to go banging on somebody's door, but you, you, you can't say that you didn't in the nicest way you could try to engage the conversation. So at that point, they're just being an asshole, mm-hmm. okay? But let's do our part and letting our, our neighbors know, listen, it's a lot. And it's the 21st century. Maybe the way that we have been doing the uh, so-called Independence Day needs to shift and uh, accommodate to people with uh, with different situations and circumstances and animals at home and all of that. Hello, all everyone. I, all I'm saying is like the, the fireworks after your baseball game or the ones that the city does where everybody can come together. I think those are great. The ones where people are setting their garages on fire, right. that's where I've got a problem. Right. All right. Well, here in uh, <laughs> Opus 155, uh, happy so-called Independence Day, everyone. Uh, maybe we'll get, I don't know. I don't really, <laughs> we have a lot of music to get to today, but I'll, yeah. I'll just quickly ask you. Independence Day. Are, are You're not wearing a red, white, and blue t-shirt right now or anything, so I don't suppose you go out of your way to celebrate every July 4th. I don't, no. Um, a buddy of mine got hit in the eye with a bottle rocket, and that pretty much cured me of that. He spent the 4th of July in, in the hospital that mm, year. Mm, so, mm, mm. Um, yeah, I know a lot of people who uh, were hurt by it because that was what they thought was fun, was blowing, right. blowing up a mailbox right. or something, and they end up getting seriously hurt. I've been seeing a lot of folks. Uh, I saw a lot of folks anyway today on social media talking about, oh, with what happened in SCOTUS last week, I'm not feeling like there's much to celebrate in X, Y, and Z. And, mm-hmm. you know, I hear that. black people have only been saying that for 400 years. Right. But there's opportunity and all things and challenges. That's the way I think about it anyway. And maybe we're getting closer to being on the same page. That's why what I almost posted on social media today, I decided to stay out of the conversation, but maybe with all of these rights being infringed upon and broader groups of people, broader communities, feeling the brunt of what the government is, is doing as far as taking away rights. Maybe that can be a path toward us being on the same page and actually viewing things like, the 4th of July as something to critique and the systems and conversations that surround it. I'm not saying that I want more people to lose their rights. All I'm saying is my silver lining is I'm encouraged to see more people critical of some of these traditions, uh, including 4th of July, considering not only the history, but the way we're being treated in the present. You know, What about a drone display? Wouldn't that be cool? That's pretty noisy, too. I mean, one drone, you got me a drone for Christmas, and it makes enough noise. A hundred of them? <laughs> I don't <laughs> That might upset the birds mm. as well. You know, Lasers? 
lasers and then we have have to talk about airplanes crashing or the satellites in space even i don't know there's always something but we we just have to lean forward yeah and the way that we accommodate and think about changing you know our present and how that you know doesn't always line up with what we've always done but that doesn't make it wrong to to shift starting with a lot of grievance here anyway okay yeah let's let's get into something lighter for for this introduction so a lot of people on social media have been talking about usher's tiny desk Mm -hmm. uh i was excited to see it i always love how uh npr's tiny desks show uh uh, if not a more acoustic side of musicians because it's not always acoustic necessarily but just a um maybe pare it down is the the, the right phrase for mm-hmm. it. I, I I really uh, love to see it. Do you have a uh, uh, an Usher track that you think of when you think of Usher, the the artist known as Usher? Uh, you make me wanna make me wanna. I think he uh, actually started with that one in this tiny desk. Let's take a listen real quick. Let's get into it. Before anything began between us, you were like my best friend, the one I used to run and talk to, and Megan, my girl, was having problems. She used to say it'll be okay, suggest the little nice things I should do. When I go home at night and lay my head down, all I seem to think about was you and how you make me want to leave the one I'm with, start a new relationship with you. This is what you do. Think about a slightly different arrangement there. The the one we all know has that prominent guitar line in it. Mm-hmm. We, I think we've even played that together. Yeah. But there's there's so much music and so much teaching that can happen. Even in that moment we just watched, you have the band sort of vamping behind him. And he says one thing, let's go or whatever. And they're ready to, they're ready to, to jump. jump on in. There, there's something that we all can learn from that. Those of us who create music together, chamber music or, or whatever it is. And I think that's just one of the really incredible things about these tiny desks. I mean, mm-hmm. they they uh, span all sorts of so-called genre. Um, I've seen a, a Blue Man Group tiny desk. The Sesame Street tiny desk will get you crying. You know, if yeah. you need a good cry, turn yeah. on that one. I mean, from your perspective, what is it about the tiny desks that make them so special? Why There's are you an intimacy. To them? There's an intimacy mm. level of it. It feels like the difference between um, going to a big theater and seeing a you know a major play versus seeing one in a small theater where mm-hmm. you know maybe 15 or 20 people can fit you're close enough to untie their t- their shoelaces right. and it's also a great measure of a musician's skill i agree because there's no, there isn't a whole bunch of effects there they're actually playing and and if so messing up right there yep. in front of you yeah uh th- this is called triloquy you know i'm so glad that you said it, it shows the ability or, and the and the the right. range of these artists should I run run the jewels really disappointed me? Oh. If you go check that one out, all right. I think you can see that they weren't quite prepared for what this is. You have to come with a a different approach. You know, as you said, right. it's more intimate. So it's not like screaming to a crowd or or leaning on your DJ to play anything for you. You know, you, you really have to be there in the moment. Right. And there have been some excellent excellent examples of that over the course of the uh tiny desks i definitely have a favorite do you have a, a favorite tiny desk or one that you return to 100 percent. i discovered karangbin through the tiny desk concert oh, okay yeah and uh it's a, it's it's great to just have on in the background maybe you're having dinner maybe it's something romantical going on sure. you know something like that sure it's great for that but um it also hits on the point that we were just making uh when when he plays in this small little, you know, intimate venue, 
it sounds just exactly like it does in the recording studio as it does you know you 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 just know that he can really play this guitar it looks really it looks like in in their set uh Karangbin performed uh three twos maria tambien august 10 and white gloves uh, of those three do you, is there one specifically that august you 10 august 10 here let's take a couple listens to this guitar we have bass and we have drums a, a nice chamber trio here creating <laughs> all yeah. of the vibes yeah you got me onto karangbin as well and dell and, and dell has been to a karangbin concert at this point i was out of town i couldn't make it but i wonder you know we we have this aversion i feel like in the so-called classical arts to electronic instruments i feel like if mm -hmm. we were talking about uh, a so-called classical bass um, a guitar, a upright bass, and I don't know, maybe some softer percussion, or or I don't know. There there is a there is a version of what Karangbin brings to the table that I think would be very accessible and very appropriate for uh, classical chamber music spaces. But there's something about the instruments being plugged in that mm -hmm. I think disqualifies it for some reason. Even though that there are uh, electric bass concertos and and all that sort of thing. Of Trap set is often a part of right. a lot of these uh, orchestra uh, orchestra charts. We need to we need to dip into it. I mean, this is it's hard for me to not consider that classical music. Which, we have chamber music here. Which tiny disc was yours? Well, mine is a different type of chamber music. You know, it comes from my fave, my fave, Megan the Stallion. I love when, uh, well. But before I play, you know, my favorite part of this, I love when I see, you know, Adele do a tiny desk and even Lizzo. But, you know, when you have the rap, you know, when you have hip hop culture, when you have the N word at, mm. at the NPR tiny desk, I feel like that is the organization really reaching as far as they can and erasing that respectability and letting this music exist in the space, A, as it should exist and B, in a new way, you know, with a band, they're playing everything anyway. Um, here, here's here's my my favorite track from the uh, Megan The Stallion Tiny Desk. So my next song is Freak Nasty. You heard her, it's called Freak <laughs> Nasty. Let's listen. Aye. So Aye. similar sound Aye. of guitar Aye. there. Freak, Freak Nasty. Mm. I'm running through your nigga house like a Tomb Raider You gotta pass around nigga, he a hot potato I told him eat it or get out, that's your ultimatum But stop licking my pussy hard, that shit aggravating Oh, he ain't mine, I just let him eat me out from time to time Call it pussy booty tang, cause I got the runny kind He can't compare me to none of these bitches Got that Beyonce, that dream girl, that dancing Freak, freak, freak nasty Go a couple of pounds, see that dick up in the casket I ain't wanna take the nigga from you, it's just happened Man, I don't wanna cut it off I don't want to cut it off, but this is what I'm thinking about. We have the guitar, we have the bass, and we have the drums, just like we deal with Karangbin. But the only difference is we have some poetry on top of it. Mm -hmm. We did. <laughs> we did. Um, 
I can see it now. Steve, <laughs> Mr. Inskeep, <laughs> Megan said the N-word. What, national? No, the other one. <laughs> so this is my thing. We can talk about a lot of things when it comes to these tiny discs, but at the end of the day, do you think it makes different uh, ensembles music more accessible? You can hear Megan's uh, lyrics clearly. <laughs> you can hear exactly what she's saying. You don't have to go to some, um, you know, scary hip hop club or something. I mean, you can you can look at it from the the comfort of your home. I think it creates some accessibility to that sort of music. Would, mm. would you not say? Even if yeah, even it, if you still feel away be, about certain words, sure. And it can be it can definitely be a bridge, you know, between the younger and older generations. You know, right. when you have you know these stripped down versions of these songs. But if you think about it, though, I mean, it's still the side piece. I mean, mm. is, is is NPR putting this over the air? That's true. Or is it only living on the website? And I mean, but is that not the role of the tiny desk to create some digital content to reach different audience or to reach sure. broader I'm, audiences? Yeah, I'm just asking you your thought. Is it is it really you you said they're putting they're they're platforming it? Mm -hmm. Well, they're one platform. Yep. I guess. And and look, I don't need to ride for National Public Radio, but I will say it would be one thing if they just didn't want to platform the music at all, but they have found a way to do it. Mm. You know, I think mm. still the the most watched uh, Tiny Desk is uh, when Anderson Pack, Pack did it yeah. year, years ago. And it's you know? a great one. And it's it's phenomenal. So I think, you know, I give them credit for the Tiny Desk as, as, a, as a concept because they aren't using any excuses to keep any sort of genre out or any aesthetic out. If, you know, you're talking about, you know, pussy and all that stuff like Megan the Stallion is, okay, well, let's do a Tiny Desk because that's where I am as an audience member anyway. I'm not tuned into their radio station, but I can see this on YouTube and on, on their distribution channels. So I guess if we want to expand that and, and create some proximity uh, to the arts, I wonder what a orchestra or an opera house's tiny desk is. And I'm not talking about paring down opera and let's hear some arias up close and personal. The, the same way that NPR has created a new lane for for mm -hmm. this for this new music and these new audiences, I wonder what that would look like for orchestras. And I don't necessarily have an idea or an answer right now, but I think it's something that should be considered, something that is very specifically pointed to a different audience. Mm. And I hear you. We can talk about the segregation of it all, and oh, so we we can't be out. On oh, the, I'm just we can't be in the space. Trouble. We have to be over here on the video. But there there's uh, there, there's something to it. So. I don't know. Maybe if the orchestras took pop tunes and created a series that folks can, you know, watch on YouTube or whatever, that could be their bridge or or their inspiration to actually go see something live. You In know? all seriousness, I do think that and the uh, Tiny Desk is one of the best series they've got going. Yeah. And uh, but let's face it, it's also you know uh, for a wide audience, majority right. wide wide audience. Right. So I think that they're really capitalizing. I mean. Having Megan the Stallion on was a big step. Having Lizzo on was a big step. Yeah, and it was a good. You know? It was a, hers was beautiful too. All, all of. I think that's that's the point. You just see a different side to these artists. Even mm. the the tiny desks that aren't straight up hip hop. I remember the Tyler the Creator tiny desk is is very 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 beautiful. Um, 
uh, I forget if it was not, I think it was Nas or one of the, one of the big rappers did one and he had cellos and, and violins back there. So it allows these artists to dig into their creativity so that they, you know, are doing something completely different as well. And I think that's what we have to, you know, take on as we talk about decolonizing classical music and creating these new audiences. We have to do something completely different. A lot of organizations want to do something slightly different or, oh, let's tweak this. But in the same way that NPR has some has done something that is unlike anything else, you know, it's in its own lane. I've got the an arts idea. institutions have to do it as well. I've got an idea. What's that? Let's stage Carmen in 1950s New York, so that we can see her get raped on a sidewalk exactly. instead of. A, oh, Scott! <laughs> what, they gonna fry you for that? It's no good. It's not funny. <laughs> I guess that would you, be different. No, no, you you said let's do it different, and that's you know they they try to do that with Shakespeare. You know yeah, they, but, they'll they'll stage it in different eras and different parts of the world. Okay, I think even more different than that because in I'm, opera I'm, we have seen the different stagings in the different times, and we've talked about Carmen here before. Carmen needs to kill uh, John Pablo. I forget his. I, he's so much of a background character. In my my mind, I can't even remember his Mm. name. Just like all of these Bachs and Beethoven and Brahms, I can hardly remember the opus numbers because I'm looking forward at what classical music can be, what a classical music, a chamber music experience can be. And we're just trying to promote that and inspire that here on this podcast. Let's jump in. Garrett McQueen. I'm Scott Blankenship. And this is Triloquy Opus 155. Thank you everyone for tuning in. To returning listeners, thank you for your continued support. To new listeners, if this is your first time checking out the Triloquy podcast, this is a show that takes the phrase classical music and recontextualizes the conversations we have around that phrase, the types of music that we approximate to that phrase, and everything in between. For more information on the Triloquy podcast, to check out past opuses and to donate, check out triloquy.org, T-R-I-L-L-O-Q-U-Y dot O-R-G. In addition to your support, Support for the Triloquy podcast comes from Springboard for the Arts. More on them at springboardforthearts.org. Huge shout out to Texas Public Radio and WXXI for uh, your platforming The Sound of 13 Season 2. The past episode this past week, Scott, was all about Duke Ellington as one of America's great composers. That isn't always something that we talk about. I think more people are getting closer to understanding why his is a name that we need to put next to Aaron Copeland and Leonard Bernstein, if not above it in some ways. So shout out to everyone uh, continuing to um, air The Sound of 13 Season 2 this week. Special shout out to Texas Public Radio and WXXI and Rochester. Huge shout out to the Lakes Area Music Festival. I'm kicking off my uh, summer lecture series with them. Always a pleasure, Scott, to go up to beautiful Brainerd. Have you spent much time up there in that part of Minnesota. Not an afternoon. It's it's Haven't really been. beautiful. All the all of the lakes out there. The first time I really heard loons really mm. singing their song early in the morning. You know that sun rises because overnight in, in places like Brainerd is pitch black. You know where where you are, wherever you are, you can't see a thing. But then as the sun slowly comes up, I mean, you see different colors of pinks and oranges that yeah. you just don't see any other time. And yeah. you know the Lake Area Music Festival up there in Brainerd is 
uh, offering beautiful music to offer the the beautiful sights and sounds. So shout out to everyone uh, with the Lake Erie Music Festival. Third Movement uh, guest this week is Eric Troy, um, a composer who uh, I'm looking forward to uh, sharing our conversation with y'all. We are going to speak to America in the final movement and offer some thoughts there. But for right now, we'll hop into Movement One. All right, Scott, so I'm going to get us going this week with a sharp. I'm reading here from musicalamerica.com headline renewed artist of the month tenor Lemmy Pulliam after stepping away from music entirely for over a decade disenchanted with the scene especially for black musicians tenor Lemmy Pulliam is back with a vengeance I'll let y'all read all of this it's a, it's a pretty lengthy article I've been seeing uh, maybe folks have seen on their social media uh, someone singing Othello um, in the sits probes and just making headlines everywhere. Well, that's I've, that's who this is. That's been making it across my social media for the past couple months. And uh, in this article, it talks about how uh, Lemmy was so um, discouraged by not really seeing black folks in the early part of his career. He kind of shifted out. Yeah. He ended up working for the Obama campaign and in that work found himself singing the national anthem for events. And, you know, after dealing with COVID and, and all sorts of stuff that was impacting his voice, he decided to tap back into it under those inspirations of, of singing the the national anthem. And, and here he is uh, making waves everywhere on opera stages, especially um, in his role in the Othello opera i wonder what it would look like for you to return this to the stage to I, opera I, I, I mean <laughs> hey no you, I, I know that you don't like musicals but I, I think about all the time what is the situation that would get me back on an orchestra stage as mm -hmm. a as a bassoonist do you ever think about the circumstances under which you could return all to the theater? time all the time man oh to do to to create like that again um, but I'm almost wondering if I wouldn't do better as a director of something hmm. you know, and give up the stage. But the, uh, I don't know. To About 15 years ago when I arrived here, Theater in the Round over in Minneapolis was trying to do a show called Death Trap, mm -hmm. which is, uh, I forget who wrote it, but the, the film version stars Michael Caine and Christopher Reeves. Um, uh, and it's a great play. And I thought, who better to play the young writer than me? Mm -hmm. I could shave and, you know, get my baby face going. I could be the young writer. And now I'm into the age where I can be the older writer. Sure. So I would love to see somebody mount Death Trap so I could audition for that. Or one of the many half-finished original productions that I have in my computer. Oh, so you, so you, so you want to be direct? You want to star and direct? Is Scott Blankenship stars in a Scott Blankenship <laughs> you, you production. Be, you you want to be the uh, directed by Scott Blankenship. Yeah, you, you want to be the white uh, Tyler Perry. Is that what it is? <laughs> is that what it is? <laughs> well, anyway, okay. Um, I like thinking about folks returning to the stage after being gone a long time because, in a way, it shows how industries move. The, the conversation of equity in, in theater, I'm, I'm sure, is thick, but 
you know, you have to understand that in opera, it's it's, it's been a, a a particularly challenging road, especially for black opera singers. And here, you know, I'm I'm quoting uh, Pulliam. He says, "I'm heartened to see the youngest crop who are just starting out on new careers, but it's also priceless to have a support system of people who've walked the path before me." So returning to the stage, he's seeing more black folks, more people of color, no longer the only one. It seems like that in itself would really enrich the industry to a point where folks like Pulliam would come back. You know, I can talk about my coming back if we would only platform more black music or center mm. America X, Y, and Z. I'm thinking about all sorts of folks. You know, I'm thinking about uh, folks like Lady Jess, uh, Stephanie Matthews, who I saw on the BET Awards last week. You know, all of these people who have made livings outside of the you know, orchestral and industrial complex, as we sometimes say, mm. who have made a way and could come back and enrich the orchestral field if there was a level of equity that was really being tapped into. I'm not, you know, mm -hmm. from, from this story, we can't say that that's the reason why Pulliam came back to the stage as an opera singer, but you can't overlook the fact that that is why he has decided to stay the second time when he's, he's, he's not having a fight the battle alone, you know? Sort of reminds me a little bit of the story of uh, baritone Ryan Speedo Green, who, uh, if it wasn't for people investing in him, he probably would have ended, he was in prison a couple times. Mm -hmm. But now he's one of the, the one of the top performers at the Met and even performing overseas. Um, maybe it takes the right inspiration from somebody in your circle or maybe just outside of it to point it out? Sure. Maybe. But now, see, so you have me thinking, you know, if you see yourself uh, a situation or a circumstance uh, where you could return to theater in that way, being the director, you know, how does the white male theater director in 2022, maybe 2023, engage the conversation of equity are you going to make sure that you're only hiring black folks you've, you've challenged orchestras to the all black season are you ready to you know institute an, an all black theater season what would be the way that, wow. <laughs> that, that you engage that part of the conversation i would have to find somebody who knows that body of work so consultation and, and reaching out into communities and that sort of thing yeah so first things first i would have to get in touch with a black theater artist that knows the material and we got to start there so you can get to know that person now and who knows this time next year you okay. could be talking about opening your new show okay at the at the fancy theater and you know you have your new <laughs> corvette and everything i mean okay. I'm, just, I'm trying to speak it into existence let's for speak you. it into existence <laughs> if there's a, a a black theater artist out there that wants to talk about putting together uh an all-black season let's let's get the rep together hallelujah hallelujah well Shout out to this tenor, Mr. Pulliam, uh, Lemmy Pulliam. I've been seeing the the clips everywhere, and I'll share a little clip with y'all here. This is uh, Mr. Pulliam singing an excerpt from Atello Si Pelciel. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Uh, Chris Koch is the conductor here. Beautiful performance by a tenor who the classical arts almost lost, but found again. A little bit here from Mr. Pulliam from Othello. Amen. Hey. 
It must feel so good to to get on stage and, you know, to really get your shit off like that. Mm-hmm. Like to really holler at a crowd. <laughs> and that has to be the greatest feeling in the world. It's the flip side of the Tiny Desk concert. Yeah. 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 So instead of this intimate thing, you are just screaming it out to the world. Have, have you to had, the deaf woman in the have, back have, row. Have you had a moment in theater where you just deliver a line or you're doing something so dramatic you feel like you were just pouring it all out there maybe it was therapeutic so. probably doesn't probably a dozen of those oh yeah ones. oh yeah also oh, you're, you're you're gonna do in the screaming and hollering if it <laughs> if it calls for it yeah i mean in a in a solo capacity in the uh in the concerto capacities one of the things that i always have to flip in my mind is that okay <laughs> this is actually about me in this moment like you know especially having spent so much of my career as a second bassoonist i'm always thinking about blend and how do i contribute to mm-hmm. the whole i mean really as all orchestral musicians should but that that is a different mode of thinking to really be in the front uh physically you know literally in the front but also artistically musically in the front and living there in your mind as an opera singer must you know, take a lot of uh, grounding and making sure that you unplug from work when you unplug. Otherwise, you're a, a diva your whole life. And we and we see that from some of the opera singers. You Speaking know, of divas, <laughs> the woman sitting next to him on stage looked bored. Oh, really? Did you see that? <laughs> uh, maybe she's just concentrating, you know, making Let's sure that, that she's counting or whatever. Anyway, shout out to um, Lemmy Pulliam, really inspiring to see more black folks engaging it's these Western voice. classical arts, you know, and right. That's that's what I'm saying. Like, and, and doing so at the top level, not just for the sake of inclusion and all of these things, but for the sake of, you know, these classical artists getting their shit off like everyone else has for all these years, Pavarotti and all these people. Mm. Anyway. We have uh, one more accidental in this first movement, and it's hard to know what to give this one. Maybe I'll I'll go with a natural, but because of the heinousness of the crime, we have to obviously offer a flat. Oh, the the rare flatural. I'm I'm reading here from the New York Times the headline: 1955 arrest warrant in Emmett Till case is found in court basement. A team of researchers, including relatives of Emmett Till, the 14-year-old black boy who was abducted and murdered in Mississippi in 1955, has discovered an unserved arrest warrant for the white woman whose accusations led to his gruesome death. I thought about talking about this woman a few weeks ago, maybe when we were talking about the Emmett Till opera. Mm -hmm. I can't remember if I went there or not, but it's very interesting for me to see this headline come to the top because it boils down to the question, we can get straight to it. Should this 80 something year old woman be sent to jail? Mm-hmm. Let's start there. What do, what, do, what do you think about that? Should the police go and put this old woman in handcuffs and put her in prison? This story has been out uh, in several different outlets over the last couple of weeks. So I've heard a couple of different interview segments with and her being interviewed? No, oh. no, no. She they can't find her now. They know that the, she last lived in North Carolina. Oh, so now she on the run. Mm. Mm. But what I, I heard an interesting point in one of the interviews. Uh, the gentleman said, "We have to, we have to flip this around, and we have to ask ourselves what we would do if this was a person of color. Would we go get them and lock them up and say, well, you know, the the, the arrest warrant was there. It was never executed.' You know." Uh, I mean, the question is, would we or would they? Would they, if this were a black woman or a black man whose warrant they found, would they not be on a national search for the the person? That's the point this interview 
subject was trying to make. So, and, and I see that perspective, but at the same time, I don't know what it does. I mean, uh, let me it, l- um, let me rehear a little bit more. It says, but those still working on Emmett's behalf said that the discovery added to their understanding of the legal drama surrounding Emmett's death. That's a good point. So, it was intentionally lost, or I mean, they they weren't in the Jim Crow South. I don't I don't believe we can say they were losing any any black warrants. They they weren't passing up the opportunity to hang us, mm-hmm. much less put us in a cage. So, my compassion. I'm I'm really trying to lead in my life with compassion more than anger and frustration. So that's the only reason I sort of think in my mind. Well, what do we do with this? I think her name is Carol. What do we, what do we do with this old white lady who did something so long ago? But Something has to be done because if we lean, if we roll out the carpet and say, okay, community service or rehabilitation, training services, you know, there are a million other black folks out there that we haven't done that for. So why are we going out of our way to do this for this old white lady? Mm -hmm. I see your point. It's a sticky situation. I want to be in a space where we do something more. Society benefits something more than just her in jail but we haven't done that for anybody else. So what what would the optics of that look like? What's yeah. what are are we, you know, um without even knowing it, acting on the conditioning of white supremacy by even questioning whether jail is appropriate right. or not. It, it this this situation brings up a lot of interesting yeah. thoughts for me. That anyway. was the that was the second piece that I heard um people arguing uh what message does it send that if you can just out if you can just um, work around the system and outrun it long enough, then you can evade having to pay for a crime. I wish they would do that with these student loans. Oh, because I'm still on the run. I, th- <laughs> I thought you were going to say something about the current political milieu, but that's good. I should I shouldn't laugh about th- this thing, but you know these folks are still alive. Mm-hmm. A lot of these folks are still alive. She is just one example, and we were we were talking about it before we cut on the mics. You look at her photo like you you look at the picture of young carolyn bryant donham looks like any other 50s maybe housewife but there's evil behind those eyes she killed a man and not even a boy a a a 14 year old Mm -hmm. how can we not do something uh i don't know I, i feel like i'm going back and forth but there there has to be something more than just the vengeance of it mm-hmm. what does society gain what what is she going to be made to do or read or accomplish in prison i feel like there there has to be some sort of example set and i'm not saying an example of oh get send her this or or do her that i think she needs to pay for the crime i think we need to the the folks in the lawmaking decision rooms need to figure out how we can make more of this moment than just putting her in jail yes she needs to go she she needs to go to jail she needs to pay for the crime that she has committed in the same way that all of these people pay for crimes many of them especially black didn't commit so she definitely needs to pay for a crime that she did commit i guess i'm just asking how can we make even more Mm -hmm. of this moment especially considering the history you know emmett till is a name that Everyone knows there's sure. there's been an opera sure. written about it, you know, and all the drama that was surrounding that. But there, the there has to be something. There has to be something more. Right. Um, for those who aren't familiar, um, after Till was killed, his mother decided to have the photographs printed, right. released the photographs and had them shared publicly so that people could see what happened to her mm-hmm. son. Um, and 
they've also released other photos of him just being, you know, a regular boy. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that it's important to remember that this was 1955. You know, this wasn't hundreds of years ago right. like when people think that slavery was actually happening mm -hmm. when it's really the length of your grandmother and her mother living back to back that's how recent this was and even if we're not talking specifically about the adults back in jim crow back in the 50s and 60s who are committing these crimes their kids are most definitely around and what do those kids think about the right, actions of right. their parents is this something that they just don't talk about at the dinner table something that is not addressed at thanksgiving probably what are the things that come from that you know the children of these criminals are in management positions you know are in uh, charge of hiring you know let's tie it to the arts are in charge of programming casting. you know what would carolyn bryant donham think about programming diverse music or black music on an orchestra concert or would she program in a certain way a certain way that looks hmm, pretty similar to what a lot of the orchestras are doing now you know how can how can how can that line <laughs> yeah. and say okay this is called triloquy right how can that line not be drawn or at least how can someone like me not be expected to draw that line now before y'all misconstrue what i said i didn't call anybody's orchestra racist necessarily i'm just saying <laughs> What I imagine this woman would do in a decision-making position in the arts is closer than not Suspect, yeah. to what we have seen yeah. over these decades and continue to see with many of our arts institutions. Let us know what you think. I think it's time to, to find this woman and not only, as I said, put her in jail, just throw her in a cage, but figure out how this can be an opportunity. Set her up from jail to talk to other white folks about the wrongs that have been done to teach them about the history, to teach them the truth of the racist past. I think something can be done here, but I guess we will we'll see. Um, I'm sure it'll be all over the news when she's found hiding somewhere for something that she didn't think that she would have to pay for. And you know, before we leave this, I wonder how many other warrants are gonna be found in the coming years how how many of these 70 80 90 year olds out here think they got off scot-free for that crime that didn't hit the news line as the emmett till situation did we'll see won't we hmm. and what is it with greenwood greenwood mississippi they lose the warrant greenwood oklahoma gets burned down in uh the black wall street massacre Move out of Greenwood. Ooh, in the history of the South, huh? All right, well, to transition out of this and into our second movement, I found a track called Lament for Emmett Till. It's a work by Alani and Adrian Young. We'll listen to a little bit of this to get us into our next movement. grateful that and i'm not even trying to make a joke here aren't, aren't you grateful that these aren't conversations that you have to have with your father 
that you don't have to have the uncomfortable idea of him having participated in something like this, even the contrary. And I've only met the man once, Mm -hmm. but when I asked him about the civil rights era and his life in the 60s, he could instantly think of a story, and that is a story in which he helped somebody black. Now, Mm -hmm. maybe your dad had it in mind because he knew whose house he was coming to, but at the end of the day, there are people who were on the right side of history and people who are not. He shared details about that story <sighs> with gracious. you and Dell that I didn't know. Yeah. So I, I don't think that it was necessarily front of mind for him that night. Maybe it's so uncomfortable for him as well. That has something to do but, with the fact that it wasn't <clears throat> talked about right, all the but time. But we already have had similar conversations. For because po- one- for, for, well, for Real quick, for folks who may not remember us talking about that previously, long story short, your dad showed up to be a character witness for a black man who was accused of something that he he didn't do or or whatever the story was. So Mm -hmm. he went out of his way to stand up for a black person where folks like Carolyn did the absolute opposite. It's like we we always talk about this this neutral place where a lot of people especially arts institutions try to stay out of certain discourses or out of out of certain uh dialogues because they don't want to get mixed into what is political or, or whatever they'll brand it. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day that neutrality doesn't exist. We it's, have, not, it's, it's not something we can lean on. We have had the conversation because shortly after- You and your dad, you mean. A, a similar conversation because after that trip, you know, he came up here to help me with some plumbing things. And, and I talked to him about some things that were on my mind. Like number one, uh, I've, I had, at that point, I was having trouble squaring uh, the effect of a lot of my privilege. Mm-hmm. And that having- a father that I could count on and someone who did have a little bit of money in his pocket that if I needed something to repair my car, whatever I needed something for school that yeah, he usually had a couple bucks in his pocket that he could help me out with. And just the, the full on realization of that not existing for people of color. Yeah. And not only that, but the conversations that we did not have to have. Mm-hmm. And, oh, sure. Yeah. You know, the, uh, about how to act in a police stop right. or what to do if you're in a, in a dangerous That's situation. The, the talk that Emmett Till's mother gave right. him before he went down to Mississippi and it still didn't save his life. Right. So um, I, I don't know what the end of the story is. I'm just saying that we do have these sort of conversations well, because I, I, I do think that um, in his mature years, he's far more open to these things than he ever would have been when when I was 12 or 13 and and people of color were having those conversations with their children. So let me put you on the spot. Let me, let me ask you to use your privilege that you speak to for good. Folks who had a similar, maybe even folks your age who had a similar upbringing, who uh, benefited from similar privileges. How would you encourage those people to speak to their parents who were in their seventies and eighties and get a measure on where they were? Back when Carolyn Bryant was out here doing what she did, how how would you encourage someone to go about engaging that conversation, asking your 70, 80, 90 year old parents, what were you doing during the 50s and 60s when mm. black folks were getting out here hung and and burnt and and everything else? What, what would you any thoughts there as far as folks 
initiating that conversation, that maybe uncomfortable conversation? I think it depends on the relationship that you have with the family member you're about to talk to, because not everybody feels like they can do that. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think there is one answer or one way to do it. I'm lucky in that I can talk like that with my father. Maybe just to do it, because I wasn't going to be shy. Your dad was sitting at my dinner table, and I wanted to know the tea. Mm -hmm. You know, I wanted to know what was up, and that wasn't me indicting or I, I because I, I like the perspective. I'm I'm not seventy or eighty years old, so I like hearing what people saw and heard and experienced back in those days. Mm -hmm. Considering the history of this nation, though, there are certain things that were seen and experienced that might not always be so comfortable right. to and talk about. The point that he brought up was. Uh, we were state when I was born. We were in Goldsboro, North Carolina, at mm -hmm. Seymour Johnson Oof. Air Base, and there was a lot of racial tension yeah. that was going on at that point. And Dad said the family did not get off the base, mm. so the, even there is that insulation. He was in it in the South, in all of the the civil rights strife that was going on, but still not having to face it. And he was judging everybody by how, but the you know he was managing the hydraulic shop. And his opinion of you varied on how well you performed. <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure. We were kind of talking about it. Well, we're we're going to get to this music here in a second, but I'm thinking about one of the conversations we were having last week with the uh, the Great Migration and mm -hmm. how things can get cut off just at a generational point mm -hmm. if we don't talk about these these stories. So I, I think this is just another example of that. I it would encourage everyone, no matter what your background is, all the black folks too, talk to your parents, talk to your grandparents. Oh my gosh. If you have a great grandparent that's still alive, definitely write down everything yeah. that they have to say. Yeah. We, we need to, and you know, last week also we were talking about archiving and, and not losing stuff to the, uh, Back up di your the shit. digital erasure that <laughs> may come one day. Yeah. Let, let's all be more intentional about uh, preserving these stories and shining a light on stories that might not be so comfortable, but conversations that should be had at least to help you know a better understanding of the future. Anyway, mm -hmm. um, those those are my words there. I hope everyone will consider doing something like that. I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna be down in Memphis for a wedding uh, next week, so. I'm going to think of a couple things to ask my parents that I, I may not know just to, you know, make sure I'm doing my due diligence as well. Mm. All right. We're here in the second movement where Scott and I are going to shine a light on some music that we've been spending some time with this week, some music that's moved us. How about you go first this week? What you got? Well, I think that in a response to, well, everything all the news headlines, and I'm sure that everybody has their own personal demons and their own trials that they're going through. Um, I, I Our guest this week was from Ohio, and so I was trying to think about Ohio musicians and yeah. Ohio composers and all that sort. And Erica Wazen, for some reason, leapt to mind. I don't know why I knew he was a Buckeye. Oh, I but, didn't know that. Okay. Um, uh, I'm not sure what town he's from anyway, but you mentioned that you liked his music a lot, uh, that that he writes a lot for wind ensembles, yep. correct? Yep. Uh, and that's where a lot of the contemporary music that was taught comes from. And so you got to know him. I only knew of a handful of his pieces. And one came across that spoke to me because it wasn't brass. There was no organ. There was... <laughs> you said it, it was nice and soft. <laughs> it was. It's it's a great example of, of this closeness that we're talking sure, about with intimacy the, yeah the, there's one person playing a marimba her name is gishu jung and 
not only is she playing the marimba, but she's playing the room. Mm-hmm. You know, she's able to get sort of a low, just barely touching uh, on the, uh, I don't know what they call it. What, what are they called? The, on the bars. On the bars. Yeah. Just barely, and sort of getting a rumble to start. But then there's other moments that are really quick fire and she's up and down the instrument and also being able to hold the mallets mm-hmm. at the right distance apart not missing any notes this woman is on point Do you get to much marimba music in your in your work? Any marimba concertos that come across the the playlist or anything like that? Mm. I only ask because I feel like when it comes to percussion features, it's easy for us to forget. We talk about the piano concertos all day. We talk about the violin features and the and the uh, the string quartets and all that sort of thing. Even as a wind player, mm-hmm. I, I tend sometimes I used to. Uh, forget about percussion and i was always intentional making sure i'm i'm keeping it in there and keeping it in the mix isn't it interesting how there's even discrimination within the the different sects of this music i mean um it's it's true no because i hear you um uh, i learned at my first radio gig harpsichord was a (laughs) no-no <laughs> there was just this rule. I, I have they, a I have a harpsichord story I can tell. I won't they, today, but now this was laid down from the upper offices. Yeah. There's you know don't put any harpsichord out there, and uh, a lot of the percussion pieces fell into that. Yeah, you know it was too it was too much racket for radio. Yeah. I but guess. that's but that's not racket at all. That that sounds no, no, like no. some really great evening music to even calm your day down with. It sounds like Northern Lights. You know, I'm, I'm, let me let me just say this since you brought up the harpsichord. Somebody really, this is years ago at this point, but basically somebody was like, oh, you're talking about you're a change maker, classical agitator, X, Y, and Z, and you don't even pay attention to contemporary harpsichord music. What kind of change maker are you? (laughs) And basically what I wanted to write was, well, nobody wants to hear that. And though (laughs) I would platform the stuff, you know, I would, there there are contemporary harpsichord concertos that I think are just so cool. Really? Um, But at the same time, you know, don't... (laughs) Anyway, shout shout out to that person and shout out to Erica Wazen. Uh, Erica Wazen has a bassoon concerto, a bassoon and wind ensemble that I would love to perform, maybe even record because there isn't really that professional recording of it out there. Not that I know of anyway. We mm-hmm. have every city has a, a a symphony or you know every every city except for Austin. We've already talked about that. San Antonio. San Antonio. Thank you. Uh, but not all of these groups and all of these uh, communities have pro- professional wind bands. So a lot of that wind band music has to live in the collegiate realm, sometimes mm. the military music realm. That's actually where I met Erica Wazen the first time when I was an undergrad. We played through his bassoon piece with him at the piano, and it was just such a uh, an incredible experience. What was that like? It was it was fun. He he was having some problems with his piano part, but <laughs> ah. <laughs> but if I wrote a piece of music for piano, I would you know I wouldn't be all, all on top of all the notes either. Yeah. Um. But that piece, Northern Lights, it's kind of uh outside of 
what I typically think of when I think of Erica Ways. And he has very, uh, very tonal, if you will, uh, sound, very American, very, you know, superhero-esque. You know, I love yeah. it. A lot of people aren't into that. I, I really love his music. Um, but I'm, I'm glad you uh, have, have shined that light on his uh, percussion music there, his marimba music. I, th I think we need to make sure that we're remembering the marimba players and the percussionists more in general. You know, mm. shout out to all of y'all out there. All right, well, the piece of music uh, that I want to share this week is one by Mason Bates. I, I feel like I must have had to have talked about Mason Bates' mothership on here in Triloquy before, you know, orchestra mm -hmm. meets the boots and cats. So he's, <laughs> he's very much known for the way he integrates electronics in his orchestral music. But he also has a lot of uh, 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 relatively acoustic music that sounds really great he has a violin concerto that i love but this week i want to talk about a track of his called desert transport so he wrote this um some years ago after taking a helicopter ride over the american southwest i believe it was arizona with um, a man named bob moody robert moody who's now the music director uh down in memphis so uh shout out to bob but um he he wrote this piece of music sort of painting the picture of of the scenery and what it was like to view the different landscapes and i'm really attracted to this you know a because i'm all about my new music contemporary music uh, american music but it also paints a picture last week we were talking a little bit about music that moves people you know well i think music that inspires imagination is also just as important So you have the context of a helicopter ride. What do you picture in your mind when you hear those sorts of sound, the big, broad, loud brass? What what must Mason Bates have been talking about musically there? Oh, um, when you get over like the Grand Canyon or um, Moab, you know, any of these southwestern national park areas, mm -hmm. it's almost too big. Sure, you know to take it, in a, a exactly. picture can never tell right. the tell the pic uh, tell the story of it. So the the I think the only instruments that get close to depicting the grandeur is the brass section. Yeah, there's also like the the fast moving sections where you can imagine he's uh you know they're getting really close to the ground and the and the land is moving by really fast. He just really beautifully paints that visual image through the music, you know, creating that sort of accessibility. You know, we talk about Bach and all of these people who wrote music for music's sake and it's perfectly in the form and X, Y, and Z, you know, all these things that none of today's audiences really think about or care about. But you have folks like Mason Bates who can connect to a person's experiences and imagination uh, in that way. And I think that's of note and uh, something that I've been paying attention to this week, going back to this piece of music. There's one other section of this that I want to share that when I was reminded that it was in here, it choked me up a little bit. It I found myself in my emotions. At what point you hear um, shakers enter the orchestral atmosphere and those shakers are met by some indigenous singing like some sort of ceremony that was going on some sort of musicking and for mason bates to include it here i think was not only very artistic but very responsible as well 
You know, we're here on this 4th of July, this so-called Independence Day, celebrating America. How many times today in your media or in your news watching have you seen indigenous people honored, indigenous ceremonies, indigenous cultures? Has has that been a part of the barrage of God bless America up no. today? Okay, and, and that's a bit of my point. And I'm not here trying to grandstand because I forgot that that was in there. But when I think about not only the way Mason Bates incorporated that music, but gave it its moment, and then the Western Orchestra, you know, accompanies with, mm-hmm. with the indigenous music taking the lead. I think there's some beautiful symbolism there of what could have been the story of America, unfortunately is not, but what can still be? What would it look like if we re-engage the conversation of repatriation of indigenous lands or or how we can incorporate the indigenous story, indigenous cultures into everything we do, certainly in the way that we celebrate this country if we choose to do so. So it's moving. It's moving to me. It's, I'm, I'm not in the moment in the same way I was earlier today because, again, I, I, I was reminded of it. I had mm. forgot that that was in there. But I really think there's there's something to that. And I hope that we can continue to, to think more and more about what that conversation looks like. I almost wish that the voices were a little bit more prevalent in the mix. Mm. Because you do know that the Supreme Court recently said that uh, reservation land is not sovereign it's, oh god it, it, no go check it out it, it it happened and i hear those words and it makes me think of i don't know i don't want to put a, a number of years into the future but yeah a, an, enough years into the future and that language might not even be spoken anymore mm-hmm. or even known and we have to not fall into the trap of thinking of these indigenous people and these indigenous cultures as gone or having disappeared and again i think there was a level of responsibility that mason bates was practicing there if you write a piece of music about a helicopter ride over the uh, southwest portion of the united states and you don't honor indigenous cultures you're doing the wrong thing you're erasing history and you're erasing the present as well you're erasing a people that are here. So shout out to Mason Bates. If you don't know Desert Transport, I definitely encourage everyone to check that out. It's what I've been listening to this week, and I um, hope y'all will check it out as well. All right, well, we're here in the third movement. This week, we are speaking with, I am speaking with Eric Troy. We got connected over social media. Eric was really excited to hear some of the conversations that were happening on this podcast. And as a composer himself, is always looking at how to engage the next Step, how to uh, take proof of concept style recordings with digital instruments and to use those as a selling point to actually get music commissioned by the orchestras. Mm. Um, he's a, a multidisciplinary music maker, so it's not just the orchestral music, but it's a cross genre. And I think this conversation just highlights what's happening with music makers who are really on the ground. We can talk about the uh, black composers who have gotten the commissions by the uh, by the big orchestras, you know, shout out to Carlos Simon, shout out to Jesse Montgomery. I was hanging out with her the other week in, in New York. We honor and we salute them. We also have to honor and salute the people who haven't quite made it there in their careers and hear their perspectives and what their thoughts are on entering the field and utilizing of their musical gifts. So all, all of that to uh, introduce Eric Troy. I'm really excited to share the conversation that I had with him. We're going to get into my conversation uh, with 
uh, a short excerpt from one of his works. This is called A Woman's Touch, a really great example of a type of music that he creates and a tune that I've also been returning to. So here's A Woman's Touch by Eric Troy to lead me into my conversation with Eric. Hope y'all enjoy. She, God's manifestation of her love for me, divine in every way. She, my understanding of balance, sacrifice, the beauty found in the world's ugliness. The ugliness in which she erases with every caress, every kiss, every word of kindness. She, God's manifestation of her love for me, my help me, gives me power in every I learned how to cook for my grandma. You know, I'm one of them. I'm that generation where grandmama had had you in. All right, baby. Sure. Now you're gonna have to come a time, and music creating music is like cooking. Yeah. Right. So and and it, and, and it's the same exact principle. You know, first ingredient is love. Love this thing. You put love, you know, grandmama's food always good because the, the first ingredient she put in everything and grandpa and the elders, they put love in it. Mm-hmm. This baby need this. There was that intention, that intentional love. So I love the music. I love this thing. And so the, also it's like, well, baby, my grandmother asked, well, what do you like? What do you like? What's your favorite food? Well, granny, I like fish. I like, I like catfish and i like spaghetti all right baby i'm gonna show you how to make this mm-hmm. i'm gonna show you how and then the next thing you gonna i want you to practice keep just making your favorite make what you love and that's kind of how i uh, uh, approach the music i make what i love right so i love horns and classical and, and big big arrangements and i love it and then i also love the simple stuff like like just the funky drummer, uh, uh, <laughs> the most minimalist composition ever to me is Sucker MCs by Run DMC. Uh-huh. It's just dudes <laughs> rapping in a drum machine. Sure. That's it. Sure. Right? So it's, 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 it's just those, just a bunch of stuff that I love. And it's just like stuff I love to eat. Right. So just go make it. So your grandma showed you where the seasoning is, where where the fish mm-hmm. is, all, you know. So who showed you where the horns are and what's and the range of the clarinet? Who who taught you those ingredients, those skills? Ah, so it's really funky. My uncle Edwin, uh, in regards to my music, he was the first, my first ever teacher, and he was in, in he was in a funk band basically. And my roots is in funk, the funk, you know, Ohio, the Ohio funk scene, you know, mm-hmm. back in when there was the Lakeside, Sled, Roger Troutman, Ohio players, Bootsy, all of that, you know. Um, and they, and everybody had the big horn section. So, of course, me being a drummer first, you know, that's that school of James Brown. I had to learn the one. Mm-hmm. OK, that's that, that, that that's that's the me. Right. So. Okay, but we need to put something on this meat, right? So you got seasoning such as the bass, which is my second instrument. And it's like, well, the bass is going to give melody to the drums, right? So, but it's always got to hit that one. So now you got guitars, you got singers and all of this other spices and how they sing it. 
are the different spices. So if you looked at Ohio players and Commodores, same instrumentation, but a different, totally different sound, mm -hmm. right? That's the, the mixture of ingredients. Speaking of food, you know, um, you have confunction and let's say you have Parliament Funkadelic and, and Earth, Wind and Fire. Sure. Right? They was a, it was like 40 of them. I don't know. <laughs> 40 of them knew. And it was all big, but same instruments, different sound, right? And that's the, the, the manipulation of ingredients, right? Like maybe George Clinton had a little bit more rarity. You know, they meat was a little bit more rare, whereas Earth, Wind and Fire was more medium, mm -hmm. medium well. Yeah. right same meat cooked differently right so and that's just how i look at making music you know what, what's the recipe to this you know um but to ask you but to get back to your questions there was my uncle Elwin. there was a teacher that I, two teachers at my high school um uh mr drone and miss sally miss sally was the orchestra orchestra teacher we had music in our school mm -hmm. and my um mr drone was my uh commu my communications we had a studio in the school and that was where i got to actually learn how to record these things hmm. right so i had access to these instruments and just access to them and i would just ex the studio was my laboratory and i would just experiment with sounds and all kind of craziness so it was wow <laughs> It was loud, but thanks to Miss Sally, she allowed me to go in and, and, and touch, you know, the contrabass for the first time. And I fell in love with that instrument and I was already playing electric bass. Mm -hmm. And then she was like, you know, you ought to check out Ron Carter. Okay. I didn't know who no Ron Carter was. Well, he's a bass player. I didn't. Ooh. <laughs> and yeah. then come find out he played with Miles Davis, who I absolutely love. Ooh. And then there was this rabbit hole that I just... <laughs> opened up and it just you know you know you talk about mm -hmm. funk you've used that word a few times that's not a mm -hmm. style of playing that's not even a music history that most right. orchestral right. musicians even learn so is there a way <laughs> that you i don't know infuse the seasoning into the notes do you find have you ever found yourself having to sort of teach the spirit of of where you're coming from musically how what, what's your experience there so it's really weird that you just said that. I had an incident over in Berlin a while back because I used to live in Germany. Mm. And and it was wild because the young lady that she was a she she was a uh, she played viola. Mm -hmm. And she was a asking me like how do you do funk? I was like it's like okay so and and I had to like answer it in a way that was respectful. But it's like it's like having sex you know and she kind of looked i said i mean do you tell your your husband and your partner okay <laughs> well i want you to thrust at 25 psi <laughs> with a third with a 33 degree angle that ain't what you do <laughs> right and she right. was like so you mean it's like making love i said it's exactly like making love and it comes from a place of the heart Mm. You know, it comes from your 
whole being, your body, your soul, your mind, and all of that. And you put that in the music. You know, that's what the funk is. And she said, so it's, it's, what about the, and she was asking me about more of the technical stuff. And I'm like, it's like, so I had to go to Bruce Lee. I was like, it's like water, my friend. You know, and, and it, you, if you put water into a cup, it takes the form of the cup. If you mm-hmm. put it into a teapot, you know, and so, and, and, and it's the same thing with music. The funk is the same exact way. It's, it, and it's, you, you can kind of tell it, it answered the question, but it didn't answer the question, you know, and it was like, you know, I, I, I you know, Prince said, if you can describe the funk, then it ain't funk. Mm. <laughs> and I quote Prince. So it's just one of those things, either you know it or you don't. What's a funk G minor self as opposed to a classical G minor self? It's the same damn thing. Sure. <laughs> It's just right. the treatment of it, the hey, way that you approach it, the way that you do it, you know. <laughs> it's, it's, it's 12 notes, but infinite, infinite combinations, right? But 12 notes. We, we talk a lot about, in the industry in general, we talk a lot about uh, people's barriers to orchestras as mm-hmm. audience members, you know, going into mm-hmm. the concert space. I wonder if you can speak to the barriers to orchestras as a creator, as a composer. I'm, uh, maybe I'm mistaken. Maybe you do have an 80-piece orchestra waiting on you tomorrow to, you know, play around with some stuff. But if you don't, if that's not your reality, <laughs> I wonder, I wonder <laughs> what the barriers to that reality are in, in your view. Honestly, I'm not concentrating on the barriers. Um, because what you, what, you, what you concentrate on will persist and manifest. Hmm. I'm concentrating on, on the gift of the music. I, I constantly see the 80s piece orchestra in my mind. Not to be getting all deep, but I speak on my orchestra so it manifests. Mm. And so far, being obedient to that gift that I'm talking about is manifesting. You dig? So I don't even concentrate on it. Like I used to, like, so, but to answer your question, to really get into it, you know, um, I would imagine like it would be about not being notoriety as a, as a composer, mm. you know, um, I find that that world is very elite or elitist. I think what's the word elite or elitist? Um, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, it is it's it's it, it's it's very respectable. Um, so I don't concentrate on any of that, you know. I am a creator connected to the creator. Sure. And it is in that that I concentrate on. I, I surrender to that. And whatever shows up, I am grateful for it. You dig? I, you know, I, I've learned that, that gr- word of grace. You know, I'm, I, I, you know, this whole thing that w- when it manifests, you know, I'm given the grace of discernment to say thank you for whatever I get. And to and, and to go all the way with where I can go with this, and yes, as you were saying, the eighty-piece orchestra. I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. But what I what what I expect and ask for is that eighty-piece and the discernment and 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 the and the grace and how to deal with those eighty personalities. Yeah. Actually, that's what the conductor and those guys do. So once I deal with the conductor, I leave it to him. You know, I'm in his hands. So, 
you know, I get cats like you to help me out with the with the with the charts and and everything, and then I'm in his hands, and then then it goes from where it's, it's going to go from where it's going to go. Yeah, you know? yeah. So I, I definitely hear and and respect what you're saying about not focusing on the obstacles. At the same time, I think that some of these obstacles have to be identified so that the people mm, in the right, industry right. whose job it is to get rid of those obstacles know what it is that they need to get rid of from the perspective of the people who would most benefit from those pathways uh, to orchestras. On the other hand, you know, again, understanding what you're able to create digitally, it seems like the jumping through hoops and cutting the red tape toward having the orchestra live, you know, as a as a palette might not be a necessary venture, especially as music technology continues to evolve and, and transform the way we think about composition. Well, I think it is necessary. Um, like, again, nothing beats the li the live human touch the human touch is so vital to music it is it is we as humans are conduits of our of the spirit so i wouldn't necessarily say that but to to, to get back to your point the barriers of i had to think about that for for, for two three seconds a couple of two three minutes two three seconds um i would say that i'm not what they expect mm. but I have had an opportunity to have a com conversation um, with with uh, someone prevalent in that world, um, someone who's who's a big dog in that world, um, and they are. It seems that you know most of these these orchestras are nonprofits, right? right. They're set up as nonprofits, and they need new stuff. And it seems like they are the, the what I have seen. Well, what I've seen before was no one. It was old money. But these, and I hate to say this, these this the, the people, the, the keepers of the gate, the gatekeepers of this, mm -hmm. they're transitioning. You know, yeah, they're transitioning out, and new gatekeepers are coming in, and so now my experience is. Okay, before these old gatekeepers, I didn't have the aesthetics. I didn't I didn't have the credentials. Um, I didn't have the notoriety, you know, all of that. Right. And then the time changed. Right. And then and, and it was just that time. Mm -hmm. You know, the audience didn't look like me. The, the, the people up on stage didn't look like me. And even being in the audience, you know, I remember going funny story going back to Severance Hall in Cleveland um in the not early nine uh, mid 90s um I went in there I wanted to check out uh it was doing a Beethoven piece and um I got all kind of looks like like and I'm checking I'm like let me, <laughs> let me smell my mother yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know I'm, I just want to hear some Beethoven man I ain't really really caring and it just kind of reminded me of them them heavy metal concerts i went to where they just like why are you here kind of mm. thing they didn't say that but it was just that you know i felt stares in the back of my neck so i'm kind of like you know and i'm already hyper vigilant because it was the 90s and the, and the height of the crack era right you know i'm already hyper vigilant anyway so it's like dude you know i can't really sit and enjoy this because 
you know, just to be honest, white folks is just looking at me like, why are you here? Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of like a Metallica concert. Why are you here? I, I, I like James Hetfield and the boys, man. Come on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just want to enjoy yeah. the music, man. And y'all making this real. It's really not that deep. But yeah, but then times are changing, you know, and I think a lot of these these barriers uh, are starting to come down because, and I hate to say, but I think it's because of the, 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 the they're trying to keep funding. Hmm. So and there's a, 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 a financial sort of urgency that's ushering in these changes or incentive, whatever. Mm-hmm. But it, it it's it's cool on my part because it's now it's like, OK, you know, from what I am experiencing, orchestra is not your old grandpa's music no more. Right. You know, right. And they are looking for. Some some orchestra. I mean, it's like, yeah, we want to do the classics, but we want to do new classics. Mm-hmm. We want to look for the new stuff. And even some of the opera, even some of the mu- musicians, like a friend of mine that I met back in Germany, she wants to do new stuff. She like she's she grew up playing uh, Wagner, mm-hmm. Wagner, 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 whatever. <laughs> sure. Um, and she's like. You know, and she hit me to like, you know, a lot of his music, people died after hearing. I was like, what? I didn't know yeah. that. Yeah. You mean Kill the Wabbit was real? <laughs> it's <just> like, <laughs> what? Sure, sure. And she's like, I grew up playing this stuff, not really knowing. No, I don't want to know, but I want to know something new. But she's a classical. She comes from that world where it's classic and it's real technical and, you know, and it's great to win. And, and she was telling me, like, like, it's new. It's great when there's a new piece that comes across, a new contemporary. I think that's the term in the yeah. classical world, new contemporary piece. Sure. And you get you, those old heads, them, them, them old heads that frown on that stuff. But then you got some of these new players that just like, look, let's do something else. Yeah. So, and there's that clash. But I just find it all interesting. You know, I just find it all interesting to me, man. It's all music. I mean the the so. mid the mid nineties that era that you're you're talking about it wasn't yesterday but at the same time you know it wasn't all of that long ago and we've seen a lot of change no. in the industry since then you yeah know, we we weren't seeing Florence Price and William Grant still uh, being performed in the mid nineties in the way that we see right. them being performed today you know black music and that tradition being venerated mm-hmm. as it should be are you encouraged you know with the perspective that you have that that chronological perspective are you encouraged that we'll continue that momentum all the way toward normalizing performing today's composers? I think it's important to uh, celebrate composers, even the black mm-hmm. composers of the early 20th century. I also mm-hmm. understand that there are composers who are living and breathing and walking around now who deserve their flowers as well. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm very encouraged. And, and it's really funny because I follow I follow you um and and in the uh, and black uh black opera alliance yep, and shout black, out to them. uh yes yes and they opened me up like it was a whole new world because for a minute when i started doing compositions and in, in orchestral compositions and i've been working on this for like seven years in that particular um vein of music and you know and, and my opening was in film mm. So, and I'm like, I know there's more other than Quincy Jones, right? 
And as I start going down this rabbit hole, and then I find you guys, and it's like, oh, we, and just just doing my own independent. I said, but it just got to be more than than uh, uh, the the uh, what's his name, uh, Xavier, uh, the Cuban French. Oh yeah, brother. Joseph Bologna. Yeah, Chevalier de Saint George. Yes. Right. Right. Yes, him. Thank you. And I stumbled across his work, and I was like, I said, it got to be more than this. Mm-hmm. I know there was some more, you know, and if it was just him, then who else was there? Mm-hmm. Who else were there? You know, this is just the ones that they know about and allowed to, uh, they got to be some more. And I'm discovering more and more and more players. Um, this new brother I just discovered recently, a uh, bass player, um, uh, Xavier, what was that brother's name? Uh, oh, yeah, Foley. Xavier Foley. Xavier Foley. Yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> See, yes. I'm in this world. <laughs> yes, I know. I kind of figured you. And this, oh my God, he's like the oh, like I'm like fam, I'm fanboying him right now. So <laughs> I'm fanboying I, him. I, I, I love he's the coming spirit. to my town soon. I, I love the he's spirit coming. of discovery that that I that I see in you. I I, I love that excitement. Oh, oh, it's so amazing. And it oh, he is the, oh, he is. He's super bad. I'm like, and he's coming soon. He's coming to uh, Akron, Ohio, uh, with the Akron Symphony Orchestra um, soon. Uh, I'm going to say the beginning of, I got to go back in there and check their dates, but I saw his name, Xavier Foley. I was like, <gasps> like, <laughs> yes, I got to go check my man out. Yes, 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 I will be there. Yes, my man. So, and it's in my hometown too. Yes, he's, yeah, I got to see dude. And um, and the and the and the one sister that you um, interviewed, it was really funny because she t- talked about John Williams showing her love, right? And it was really funny because my introduction to John Williams was I saw the very first Star Wars, mm-hmm. right, when it first in Atlanta, Georgia, at the Fox Theater, and the opening, and it was so loud. <laughs> I was like, and I told my mom, I want to make that. I want to make mm-hmm. that kind of music. What is that? And um, she's like, that's classical, baby. That's classical music. You know, but that's, but it's really funny because, you know, the generation before us, you know, that boomer generation, you know, that's, that's, rich, that's rich white people music. Almost kind of like, mm-hmm. but I want to make it. Well, that's fine, baby, but it's like, oh man. So, you know, when you little, you don't. Okay, well, I just go back to the spunk thing, you know. But it kept calling me, man. And so, what my mom did was, she bought me the Star Wars um, score, the 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 the, the, the on vinyl, mm-hmm. and I played that record over and over and over until it scratched. So. And then it was jacked up, and I can't find the original vinyl no more. I'm gonna find it though. I'm gonna get it again. <laughs> so I'm uh, I'm gonna get that vinyl again. So, so as, yeah, as, it was really cool. As we broaden, especially black folks, as we broaden 
uh, our purview of possibilities, especially musical possibilities, all the way into the concert hall, I think it's important for us to not feel like we have to leave parts of ourselves outside, you know, even musically speaking and creatively speaking. I think about mm -hmm. classical music as something that can also refer to the music of Nina Simone and to Marvin Gaye, you know, mm -hmm. countless jazz, mm -hmm. countless uh, R&B and, and, and all of that sort of thing. So with, so with that in mind, as we, you know, uh, get close to wrapping up here, as you continue on your journey toward creating this symphonic music, what are you bringing with you? I hope that you aren't leaving the funk all the way outside, outside of the concert hall. No, no. This, my stuff is always on the one. <laughs> it's, it's going, I don't care what music it is. I could be playing um, Schlager music of Germany. It's going to be on the one. So I, I'm going to throw that one in there. You you know, it's always going to be on the one. I can't even help it. You know, that's just, you know, asking a bird to not fly. Sure. You know, but um, but no, uh, uh, I'm I'm bringing all of the I'm bringing the 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 Quincy Jones. I'm bringing the Nina Simone. I stand there in their spirit in in, in hopes that you know I make them proud. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, Miles, uh, 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 Holland, uh, uh, Holland G, uh, Screaming G Hawkins, mm -hmm. uh, Cleveland's yeah. own. You know, all of those guys. Millie Jackson, you know, little Millie Jackson to Lil Kemp, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> Leontine Price, all of them, you know, and then you talk about, you know, American, America's, America's classical music is our music. It is right. jazz. It is the funk. It is the soul, you, you know, and uh, I think the piece, um, I sent you a piece called You Are Love and, yeah. and, and, and it encompasses all of that. And it's my love letter to, um, to a hurting world right now. You know, um, it's my love letter to tell you that I love you. You know, I love this world. I love the music, you know, and love will conquer all. I know that sounds corny to some people, but it really does work, you know? So, and wanted to put that in there, you know, it has gospel in it. It has, the elements of gospel, it has the elements of rock, it has the elements of the one, as elements of of, of of the classical, you know, um, but it is my love letter, it is my composition, and it is me, you know, and it is speaking for me. So just <laughs> yeah, as it how does that speak for you? There, there, there's how. So, you know, it's all in the music. So coping with the loneliness locked down isolated social distance no contact no touching it's contagious everyone Let's believe this one thing is for certain. You are love. You are love. 
You Are Loved, an excerpt there by Eric Troy. He describes that, uh, I'm, I'm reading uh, here online, uh, a conceptual multimedia performance using hybrid symphonic cinematic music created uh, where uh, symphony and opera, soul and film, all of that merged together. One of the things, Scott, that we talked about in our conversation was, again, the use of the digital Im uh, uh, instruments and that being a proof of concept, you know, for the uh, so-called actual, you know, the acoustic orchestral instruments. But it, it, I can't help but to think about just letting the music go on the radio or, or whatever the vehicles are through those uh, digital audio workspace sort of instruments. Sure. You know, we were talking for a while about how the loop pedal has become just part yeah, of every like musician's one of the instruments. Bag. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there, there's several people that use looping that have made it across the year. Zoe Keating comes to mind. Mm, okay. Um, she plays a cello with uh, with some loop effects. So the, yeah. The, it's happening. It, it's happening, but it's almost indetectable. Mm. The only reason I, I think about it again is because not all of the composers who have music that deserves to be platform have that music recorded. With the technology that we get from digital instruments these days, we can we can make room. Then mm. that, that's what I think as we continue to talk about getting this music recorded by orchestras. Anyway, mm -hmm. shout out to um, Eric Troy. Thanks so much uh, for him for spending the time with me. I'm glad that I could share our conversation with you. All right. Well, you know, Eric just so happens to be from Akron. We're going to talk about a little bit of that. And we were talking about what piece of music would be appropriate to get us into the final movement today. And I thought that we would return to Eric Awazin. He wrote a trumpet sonata. It was, I've seen it performed, a, a, an orchestral arrangement of it as a concerto. But the 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 thing that people listen to the most, at least from, from my perspective, is the piano and trumpet rendition. The, the middle movement is just so tender and so beautiful. So as I'm thinking about all of the lives lost and all of the difficult conversations we have moving forward to find some level of peace in this country that we don't have yet. I thought it would be great to shine a light on this really beautiful piece of American music. So here's the middle movement of Erica Wazin's Sonata for Trumpet and Piano to get us into our final movement today. I wish you could hear the orchestration that I've heard of this piece just on on first or, or second listen. What are some of the words that come to your mind, you know, considering the aesthetic of that? How would you how would you describe what we just heard? It's sweet. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, what was the word that you used just before? Oh, I've, I've already forgotten. I'm sorry. What's coming to my mind now is tender. Oh, tender. tender. Sure. Yeah, yeah. There's, a, there's a tenderness about it, a sweetness. See, now that I'm listening again, I'm thinking of the word reminiscent. I'm thinking about nostalgic, the nostalgia, you mm. know, and, and he writes 
One day that bassoon concerto is going to be recorded. Maybe I'll have to do it myself. I'll, I'll front the money it. to hire it or a uh, uh, wind ensemble. Erica Wazen has written some really incredible music. Erica Wazen is going to be talked about after he's dead. I mean, he's definitely going to be one of those American composers. Mm. I try to give him his flowers now. I, I appreciate your bringing in that marimba piece because I haven't thought about Erica Wazen in a while, but it was a joy to meet him. Anyone who's ever met him, you know, we'll talk about how jolly he is anyway. We are, yeah, he was born in Cleveland about 40 yeah. minutes north of Akron. So, But we are here to, you know, talk about Erica Wazen. So we're, we're here in the final movement. So we, we brushed up on this in the very opening. I don't usually watch the footage from this police brutality stuff, but I watched this video and it is undeniably murder. As far as I'm concerned, someone put on Twitter that he was shot 60 times and there were 90 shots. So that means somebody reloaded. Somebody emptied a clip and had to put some more bullets out into his body. Mm. Okay. I also showed you uh, if I, I find if I find the tweet, I'll put it in the description, a link to it. I showed you uh, some Boy Scouts. I forget where uh, they were at, went to a, a police station to take a tour and images of black men were being used as target practice. So what we see is that it is a part of a police person's training to dehumanize the black body, especially the black male body. And that's how you get to situations like we have here, what happened over in uh, in, in Akron. I think it's clear that the government, both local and national, they're not going to pull the reins on the police. The body cam footage does not matter. You know, there was a time where we were hopeful where if the police officers had to wear that camera, they would be more careful. We see that that doesn't matter. I think 2020 taught me personally that leading with anger and frustration and vengeance, while it may feel good in the moment to watch police stations burn down and, and different things happen, where does that get us if the actual infrastructures are continue to, to run the way that they're running? But the soft approach, obviously, the Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. approach hasn't changed anything either. He talked about police brutality in his I Have a Dream speech, mm -hmm. you know, and we're still here. It's hard to know if there is any way forward, if there's any peaceful way forward when it comes to what the police are doing and the way that they're terrorizing the populace. So what does it look like going forward then? Because I've noticed you sort of temper your approach. I mean, the fire and the passion is still there from when I first met you, but it seems like your approach, your, your, it, it's more thoughtful rather than you remember how I uh, I, oh, told, yeah. I told you the story about the bulls that the uh, the cows down yeah, in the valley. Sure. Yeah, it, it seems to me like you're walking. You're not running so quickly down into the valley. How about that? I think I'm looking. I'm not even walking down there. I'm looking down and just trying to survey what is the way to engage this situation. Mm. The police are being trained to kill, and specifically kill black people, black men. Maybe step one is helping more people, especially white folks and people who feel compelled to support the police, maybe getting them a clearer picture. But, you know, after after what happened to George Floyd, it's hard for me to imagine people still not being aware of, of what's going on. So what is it going to take? It's just is this just where we are. Some people, no matter what, are going to support the police 
And those of us who see things another way, we can continue to talk, we can continue to protest, but are, are, is, is this just where we are? I mean, is it is it too late? Is is the house burning too much mm. to to be saved, to be salvaged? That's what I can't help but to to ask myself when I think about this sort of situation. You're right, and it especially solidifies it when it doesn't stop. You know, this is our 300 some odd uh, mass shooting. This is oh, our yeah, we're in Highland Park today, uh, July Fourth. Right. Yeah, uh, and you know, I don't know how many times. You you multiply that by when you when you talk about the number of people who have been killed in the street by police. So we can't speak to to society as a whole because we are where we are politically, socially, on all parts of this conversation. So let's let's pare this down and talk specifically about the arts and arts institutions. What is the reason for the relative silence? Let's say. I hesitate because I don't want this to be about your institution specifically or even my institution now that I'm, you know, working for for a nonprofit, but what precludes an arts institution from making the bold statements against guns, for example, or against the police? The Minnesota Orchestra did their part back in right. 2020 when they broke their contract with the Minneapolis uh, police. So it is, I suppose it is happening. I can't say that it's not happening, but from my perspective, it's not happening broad enough. I feel like every arts institution needs to take an upfront, unapologetic stance when it comes to these issues in the same way that everyone posted their black squares and their black lives matter thing in 2020, we have to keep the energy going and keep the discourse going. I mean, I've, We've been circling this for the past few weeks. Can we skip the part where something tragic happens at an orchestra concert or at an opera performance? Can we just not have to do that mm. to take an action step? Mm -hmm. Because that's where it seems like we're leading to. I mean, this was a 4th of July parade in Highland Park. It seems like any conservative's dream would be to support something like that. But you have the white nationalists who I understand that they caught mm -hmm. at this point, you mm -hmm. know, killed six people and, and injured so many others. Taken alive. If it's happening, taken alive, you're right. If it's happening in spaces like that, why do we think that it can't happen in any space, including art space? That's what I'm saying. Are 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 folks who run these organizations really not thinking about it? Are they not considering it? Do they think that it can't happen? These are the questions I have at this point. And I'm not trying to point the finger at this. You know, you say, you know, my approach and the way that I engage these conversations have changed. I don't think pointing the finger at anyone is what I'm trying to do as much as I'm just trying to get people to think about the fact that human lives are being lost. Children are being killed. There are folks with 60 bullets in their back. You know, running from the police is, is not a crime punishable by death. It should not be anyway. So we, we lean on, you know, the law or what's legal or why was he running and X, Y, and Z. I don't think any of that is, is here nor there when we talk about the compassion for human life. I'm trying to lead with compassion these days. And maybe my doing that can inspire other people to lead with that same compassion. We can all be in a situation where we are afraid of what the police is going to do to us and we run or what, or, you know, you, you can never speak to what situation you're going to be in your life. So passing mm -hmm. judgment on someone is, 
um, you know, and and I'm I'm sighing here and at a loss for words because we circled the same thing, but maybe repeating it is a part of the work. Maybe continuing to have the conversation is is a part of the work. Let's go know. back. Let's go back to the conversation though about arts organizations and radio because you had a specific question about uh, uh, not stances not being taken in those area areas about you know like why doesn't a uh, a radio station come right out and say we are against police brutality. I mean, is it a funding issue? Are, are organizations afraid that someone is going to pull their funding if you advocate for human life? I mean, what is it? I would say you're talking about conventions. Hmm. You're just talking about things that just have been done. And I can tell you, every every public every radio station I've worked at has shied away from stepping into the political fray just because they they say we're not a news station that's not what we do we play music and and that's at the top 40 radio stations and the alternative stations that i worked at too they say leave that to the leave that to the news we do music i'm not saying it's right i'm saying what it is um now obviously morning and afternoon drive shows you know they'll dump they'll jump they'll jump in the news but our arts institutions, are there roles to just play music or are these mission statements things that read accompanying audiences or engaging communities? Or is that You're not talking the about language? being performative. Well, I'm, I'm saying if we go to the mission statement of most of these arts institutions, it doesn't just say we're here to play music. That that's our job. Mm. It's nuanced in a way to even the the classical radio stations to be the companion or 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 whatever you know language th this is. So so maybe so this is what I'll say then. I encourage everyone to go to the mission statement of the arts institution that's in your community or that you're most aligned with, and maybe write to them and make a case for them to stand by their their mission statement. If the 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 mission of Triloquy is to decolonize the conversations and the pieces of music connected to the phrase classical music. So if we're going to decolonize that phrase, that means we have to include these conversations and what we do here on mm. this podcast. So that's how I can make that connection. So however we can make the connection with all of the mission statements of these arts institutions, what they see their role as uh, to the community or, or for a community, maybe that can be the road forward. Rest in peace to everyone who lost their lives in Highland Park. Rest in peace to Jalen Walker and to all of the other people whose stories we, we will never know. We haven't heard and that we will never know. Arts institutions have a role to play in this conversation. There's no neutrality. People are losing their lives. We aren't headed in a positive direction. Let's skip the tragedy that happens in the opera house, in the concert hall, at the conservatory, at the school of music, whatever. Let's just skip that part and take a stand now. At least I can try to inspire us to do so. Thank you, everyone. Let's hold strong. Let's lead with compassion. And we'll see y'all next week.